Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. My guest today is a friend of mine named Simon. We met while working at Duist, and he's an Australian citizen currently living in New York. And not only that, he's lived uh, in a variety of other countries and in Southeast Asia and Europe. And we get into all that. We talk about his uh, immigration away from Australia in in a place a lot of people would consider to be a paradise and what life is like in New York in particular, but also just his experience living in other countries. We get deep into some of the visa stuff that you might need to know if you are Australian or uh, really from any country outside the U.S. uh, trying to live in the U.S., and what his perspective has been as a foreigner living in New York in particular, but also just the United States during a pretty tumultuous time in the U.S. history. So, Super fun catching up with Simon. He has a lot of serious practical knowledge to share, a unique situation that he's currently living through, which we get into deeper. And uh, and we talk just a lot about what life is like as, a, as an expat living in the U.S. So whether you want to be an expat yourself that moves to the U.S. or you're somebody that's kind of interested in like, hey, what's it like as a, as a foreigner living in my country? His perspective was really interesting. I had a blast catching up with him. I hope you'll enjoy as well. Please help me in welcoming Simon to About Abroad. Hey, Simon, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Ah, doing good. All things considered, you know, like 2020, 2021 good, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I am, to be fair, like stuck in a, a hotel room quarantining right now. Where are you exactly? So yeah, tell tell us about that. Where are you and, and what's the quarantine situation? Yeah, so originally I'm living in New York. Right now I'm in Perth in Australia, which is my hometown. So I'm back here to deal with some visa stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. And basically Australia right now has a mandatory 14-day quarantine period. So it's all like, you know, government organized. You get put up in a hotel and you just stay in your room literally for 14 (laughs) days. You get two COVID tests, one at the start and one on the 12th day. So I'm on the 13th day. I'm like right at the end. I'm almost, I'm out tomorrow. (laughs) So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh man, I cannot imagine having in January, having flown from New York to Perth and then having to be stuck inside. Like <laughs> you, <laughs> you've, you've just left, like, the, left the worst of the worst and flown to the best of the best and they lock you inside. <laughs> yeah, I do have a tiny little window that I can open and I've got pretty big windows. I can see like big blue sky every day and everybody outside kind of enjoying the weather. But I'm just like hanging in there. I'm almost out. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I'm excited for you to be out of jail soon. That's amazing. And so you had to go all the way back to Australia to do visa stuff. Like it's not possible to to renew the visa online. Yeah. So there are ways to do 
extensions online and you can do change of employer stuff online. Well, it's, it's not really online, but it's like through the USCIS. That usually takes, you know, anywhere between four to six months. My visa had already been in sort of like a grace period through extending within the country. My current employer and I got a new job. We were trying to work out how we were going to get the new visa for the new job because it's my visa is completely tied to the company that I'm working for. So basically a change of employer would take, um, you know, my, I was already waiting for my extension to be approved for my, my current company. And then after that, a change of employer could take another four months. So it was just like not really feasible. So the other option is to attend an embassy interview, but those can only be done outside of the US. So we looked around at like which embassies were actually even taking appointments. Canada was an option, but they required a quarantine period as well. But it also is very difficult to get into Canada um, if you're not a citizen or if you're not, you know, normally a resident of Canada. After spending actually, you know, a couple months trying to work out how to make this work, what I came up with was the, you know, literally the quickest way was to fly, you know, 30 hours back to Perth attend an embassy interview here, get my papers, and then go back to the US. Oh my God, the the price we pay, like, the, like why do we put ourselves through this, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm also, like, somebody might say, like, dude, just stay put, man. Just like, see, right. you're from one of the I greatest mean, the countries good. in the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, There's no COVID in Perth right now. <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I... I I'm also actually in the middle of renewing my visa. We just submitted our paperwork through the Spanish processes here in in Spain a, a week ago or something like that. And we've been working on it for two months. And And sometimes we have that, we're like, why are we doing this? This is such a pain. It's like, what what could I do with all these hours? Like I could probably produce something really cool, but uh, right. anyway, <laughs> this is the, the price we pay. Like, and that's nuts. So you legitimately, you could have like, that, that seems like such weird bureaucracy that you have to be outside the U.S. Like I could understand if they said you have to go back to your country, but literally you could have gone to Mexico or Canada if that were an easy option and do the same thing. It just has to be outside the U.S. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, the first time I got my visa, I'm on an E3 visa for what it's worth. It's like an Australian specialty occupation. It's kind of like an Australian only H1B because we follow the US into whatever war that you guys want to go into. So we've got kind of like a, a special deal. The benefits so, of, of war. Wow. That's, that's awesome. God. Yeah. So, I mean, so when I first got my visa, I was actually living in Berlin at the time, kind of still doing the whole like digital nomad thing. So I've actually never gotten my visa in Australia. I've, I've only done it abroad, but yeah, as long as you're outside the US, it's, it's cool. And so what is, so let's, uh, I don't know the answer to this. And so I'm sure plenty of people listening don't as well. You said H1B and the E3. Can you kind of give a little background on those two? Sure. So the H1B is probably the most common sort of, um, you know, foreigner visa for working professionals, particularly for, for tech, I think. So H1B, there's like 10,000 visas per year that are available. Uh, is this just for Australians? H1B is the one that's for everybody. Okay. Um, you still need to be sponsored by an employer. So you need to sort of get the job first. 
and then they will, I've actually never done the H1B, but if it's anything like the E3, they basically need to put together an application for you, fill out some forms. They tell the government how much they're going to pay you and things like that. Um, there's actually some new rules about that as well that have come in with the last US administration um, that have made it a little bit more difficult. But the, the E3 is basically the Australian version of that. I think there's also 10,000 E3 visas every year and they've, they've never actually been fully allocated. So got it. Okay, so the, the H1B is, is issued by the US for foreigners who want to come work in the US, but the E3 is basically the same thing, just particularly for Australians. Yeah, exactly. I think there might also be one for Canadians, but I'm not 100% on that. I think so too. Yeah. And I believe actually there's an Irish one as well. Right. But I, I don't know. I don't know the name of it, but okay. All right. So that's interesting. And so you got, and so you can apply for the H1, sorry, is it H1B? Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can apply for that outside of the U S like you said, you or or, or you don't have to be in the U S to, to get that. In fact, it sounds like you probably wouldn't be. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't be. You'd be getting sponsored by a company to to get that. And there is a little bit of a difference between the two in that E3 visas are technically non-immigrant visas. So they're, and they're without the intent to immigrate. So an H1B, it's, both of them are two years long. An H1B does have the option or the like availability to eventually get a permanent residency in a green card track. Whereas the E3 visa is purely like a professional visa with, you know, you're just supposed to be like a working professional. So it's, there's a little bit of a difference there, but otherwise they're basically the same. Okay. And they have to be and they're issued kind of via a, a company that hires you. So in your case, for instance, a company in New York said, we really want to hire Simon. And so we're getting the H1B on his behalf, so, so to speak. Yeah. Well, for me, it's the E3. The, the Aussie E3, one yeah. is the E3. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Is there a, do you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not asking you to be like a, a visa, you know, guru. Here, <laughs> yeah, I'm not just, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For a uh, disclaimer, Simon is not a lawyer. Yeah. Neither am I. This, uh, this advice <laughs> should be taken at face value. <laughs> but Definitely, um, yeah. do you, do you know, like, is there some burden of proof that the company has to place, like to say, like, we have we have to hire Simon and not an American. I, I ask that because in for as an American coming to Europe, that is sort of the the burden of proof on a company. And that's why it's really difficult. They have to prove that they're they've tried to hire Europeans for this particular role and there just wasn't a European citizen that fit the role as well as the American, like like by a long shot. I know that in Australia, that's kind of a thing as well. I don't think it's so much in the US a thing of, you know, we have been trying to hire somebody and can't find anybody. It's more of like along the lines of this person is a specialist at what they do. So there's more proof required to show that you're kind of like um, particularly desirable and will be a benefit to the country long-term um, to have mm -hmm. you there. So for example, the H1B changes that have happened recently require that like more H-1Bs are issued for like the kind of top percentage salaries that are getting paid allocated based on uh, the salary. And so 
companies now have basically when they're sponsoring H1Bs need to prove that they're paying top, you know, top levels um, for those visas. Interesting. Do you, or at least you the, the priority imp- is on those. Ah, okay. Do you have the impression like uh, you can, you can be, feel free to give a little humble brag here. Don't be modest. Like, do you have the impression that it's a bit of a privilege? Like, are these accessible to the common worker or do you need, like, is it pretty competitive and like, you know, like you shouldn't, if someone wanted to apply for this, would you say it's more a matter of checking all the right boxes or is it like, you got to be pretty qualified and it's going to be a very competitive process? So again, I'm, I'm on an E3, so it's much easier for me because there's always more E3 visas every year than people actually applying for them, or at least right. getting issued them. Um, whereas the H1Bs, there's like a lack of H1B visas in general. Like every year they're completely exhausted. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's becoming more difficult because of these new restrictions on the salary requirements for these visas. So you know, it used to be that a company would use an H-1B kind of like a, a blanket visa for professionals. And there's still requirements on those. Like, I think you need to have at least a bachelor's degree and it needs to be, you know, there's some kind of accreditation thing. So you need to have gone to a university in a country that kind of like fits with the U.S.'s idea of what a, a bachelor degree is. So there's some things like that that make it a little bit trickier. It's not not just for everybody. I think there might be other visas that are a little bit more relevant to other industries, but I know that for tech, at least, the H-1B is kind of like the, the standard way in. Gotcha. Makes sense. All right, cool. I'll uh, I'll take you off the, uh, the 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 visa attorney advisor role and let's move into. I mean, honestly, work. after spending so many months trying to work out how to make this current situation work, I do feel almost like I could be, you know, a few steps away from being an immigration lawyer. So. That, that's it, man. I mean, I I do as well. Like people ask me questions <laughs> about the. I'm on what's called the non lucrative visa and people ask me questions about it all the time and I'm amazed sometimes I'm like, man, I'm able to rattle off a lot of information <laughs> on this. Like, like I yeah, kind of know what I'm talking about now. I know it's crazy. The things that you pick up just being in this kind of situation. Like when I was living in France, I learned so much about the French taxation system. And I ended up only being there for like, I mean, less time than I actually needed to actually become like a taxable resident of France. Um, and I still, I still understood like the whole system, basically. It's, it's just, you just need to pick up this stuff when you're, when you're living like this, I guess. You do. You've, you've lived a pretty interesting life. Let's talk about some of the places you've lived. Uh, you've already mentioned Berlin and, and France, obviously the U.S., obviously from Australia. Are there any others on that list where you've considered like, you know, quote unquote lived, however you define that? I don't know how long you have to live in a place to consider yourself having lived there. I don't know if there's some rules. There's a sliding scale. (laughs) I say if you got mail delivered there, like if you had had an address that you apply, you know, to send you mail, then maybe that counts. I don't have a rule either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so I stayed in Cambodia in Phnom Penh for about seven, seven or eight months. So that's, that was probably, Apart from Bordeaux and Berlin, it's probably the only other sort of long-term place. 
I forgot about Cambodia. I, I remember that from our conversations. That was a big, impactful trip for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just an incredible country as well. I was actually thinking about it the other day. Like, I just, I'd love to go back and and spend some more time there. And to actually live there for a while is a really kind of special experience. I think on a on a vacation, you kind of pressured to spend a lot of time at you know, I mean, the, the tourist sites in Cambodia are amazing, but just kind of getting into the local culture and especially in the city in Phnom Penh, it's not really a tourist destination, um, but if you spend enough time there, you do kind of get a really good feel for the city and the people and their, you know, the restaurants and the bars. And there's a really big expat community there, which is doing really interesting things. There's a lot of people working for, for UNICEF, for the UN, or, you know, lots of different NGOs over there. It's, it's a really interesting place to be. That's what you were doing, right? Weren't you in, in something like that? So my ex-girlfriend was working for a French NGO called Passerelle Numerique, which is, right. is uh, an NGO that sort of um, teaches uh, kids after high school you know, uh, different sort of, um, they have like a few different tech programs. So there's like a software development track and a like IT track and, you know, sort of like DevOps type stuff. So um, yeah, they're trying to like build a, a, a tech community in Cambodia. And they're, they actually operate in a few different countries in Southeast Asia. Oh man, that's amazing. So that's a fun chapter. And then, and you ended up back in France and, 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 and in Europe, did you did you find that you really enjoyed your life in Europe? Like, like you've, you've, you've might, you've gone to the U S now. And so I'm curious about that, like kind of in between chapter where you were in, uh, Europe, how did you jive with the, with the culture and the different countries of Europe? Did you enjoy your time here or were you always kind of itchy feet looking to move on? That's a good question. I think that there's, I don't know. I have, I have different feelings about different cities in Europe and some, especially as a foreigner, we're much more livable than other cities, especially as someone kind of moving around a lot. You know, I never really felt that I got to <laughs> the proficiency with French to a level where I felt super comfortable living there. Whereas in Berlin, I spent a bunch of time there and I never really had that same stress in, in Berlin. Yeah. I, I did a small trip to Paris, you know, maybe maybe two years ago now, but I remember just feeling really at ease, you know, speaking my terrible French there. Whereas in Bordeaux, <laughs> I always felt like a lot of weight on my shoulders to, to not seem stupid or, you know, some of the like bureaucratic stuff I had to deal with was really stressful because I just didn't know how to explain, uh, you know, what I needed or what I was looking for. So, yeah, And then there's other that... cities, like we used to work together at Duist and Duist had a big presence in Portugal. So I spent a bunch of time in Porto and I felt really at ease in Porto as well. And I felt that like getting by with some really terrible Portuguese was like, was doable for me. So yeah, I think yeah. there's just like different cities, different kinds of experiences as a foreigner. Yeah. Language is interesting like that because I mean, you can be the most confident person in the world and language can make you feel like a baby. Like it makes you feel right. really, really lesser than yourself and, and kind of change, it can change your whole personality. Like, and I, and I can imagine, in, I mean, France has a stereotype, uh, of, you know, like you, they, they don't 
necessarily fully adopt the idea that you that everybody should speak English uh, as a second language. So you know that you can go to places in France and find that like people just don't speak English. You're expected to speak French, and so I can imagine being in Bordeaux and like you know feeling that weight. Like okay, I need to I need to produce some French here. I've been here long enough where I should be able to say some things, but then you you find yourself reduced to like a, a, a four-year-old and you're like, what is happening to me? Like, where's my confidence going? And then in a right. place like Portugal or, or Berlin, where you have, you know, Berlin's so international. And I have friends that work there that say like, yeah, I mean, I have not learned a word of German and I've been here for a couple of years because we all just speak English <laughs> and the Portuguese speak amazing English. So like, I think if you just try a little bit of Portuguese there, they're like, super pumped about that. So I can totally yeah. resonate with, with everything you're saying. And I, I feel the same pain here in Spain sometimes. Yeah. I mean, Berlin in particular is wild. Like this is a, a little insider secret of Berlin. Most of the cafes in Berlin are owned by Australians. So like I would really? feel pretty comfortable, like going into these, you know, super nice cafes that I, I kind of missed in, in some cities in Europe. It's really hard to find that. Like Aussies are very coffee snob, right? So yeah. <laughs> I feel so, like uh, Aussies, that's like the case in like every city. Like I, I was just recently in Amsterdam. I feel like every coffee shop I went to was, and I'm not talking about the weed smoking ones, just like a regular one. Like <laughs> they would, they were almost always owned by Aussies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really big thing. So in, a lot of the times, you know, in Berlin, I was actually hanging out with just a lot of Australians. I think one, uh, one thing to talk about with France, like, I think that a huge thing for me that I didn't realize until I wasn't living in Bordeaux anymore is that your mindset about what you're trying to do in a place matters so much. When I, when I first moved to Bordeaux, I was really immersed myself in the language and I'm going to like, just try incredibly hard to like speak French well and learn and pick up and, you know, just absorb as much as I can. And I think that like, I put so much pressure on myself that it kind of became overwhelming and, and like unproductive. And I ended up returning to Bordeaux, you know, a few months after, you know, with, without the same intent, right? Like without the, I'm going to live here forever. It was just like a, a trip back. And everything just felt so much easier because I was like at ease and I had no, no stress about it. It wasn't like, you know, if I go into this bakery and make a fool of myself, I'm going to have to go back to this, this bakery because <laughs> I love their bread like every single day. And they're going to remember like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that sounds weird. And he's a complete idiot. Um, <laughs> but just vacationing, vacationing there, you know, I was like speaking French, ordering my baguettes, my chocolatine and like no problem. You know, so I think that yeah. trying to like cut off that that ego about how stupid you might sound is like such an important step to really feeling comfortable and actually being able to to jump over that hurdle of like oh i'm gonna sound stupid like you have to sound stupid and just dive into it yeah that's that's really good advice i think for anybody that's considering maybe their first venture abroad into like living somewhere is to try to maintain like like presumably if you're considering moving from Australia to France or whatever, you've probably traveled a little bit. Like it's probably not your first time in a foreign country, but even if it is like try to maintain that mindset 
of how you felt when you were on vacation, when it was just vacation, because like when you're on vacation, you, you land in a place and like, it's amazing. Your energy is so contagious. Like you, you end up meeting people. I mean, why is it when you go on mm -hmm. vacation for two weeks to a place, you end up meeting people along the way and hanging out with groups of people and, and you're, you're just like letting it all loose. You're trying to speak the language, knowing that you're butchering it and laughing about it. And then some, at some point when you make that long-term move, exactly as you just said, like your mindset transitions to like, I've got to nail this. I mean, I, I do this. With <laughs> I have to be able to use the subjunctive, like, Oh God, you know, how can I not use the subjunctive in that case? Like, and you're like, why am I doing that to myself? That's not, nobody, nobody's asking me to be a, fluent Spanish speaker, I'm only asking myself to do that. And it's an unfair pressure to put on yourself and it sucks the joy out of the experience. Living abroad is that it's like very easy to tell people like, oh, hey, like I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly friendly with everybody because I'm just like vacationing and like traveling around and meeting people and everything. And then when you actually live in a city, you need to have, you know, a really strong intention to actually put yourself out there and try and meet people because it's not quite the same, you know, experience. You've, you've got to actually make that intention to build a community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and be careful about like the, the opposite of that, like, uh, you know, getting too caught up in that community. I've been in situations where the expat community is really strong and sort of divided from the the uh, local community. And, and you can find yourself getting wrapped up in a situation where you're like, I'm not even experiencing the country anymore. I'm, I'm yeah. just around my compatriots. And I think that, me... that, yeah, that is really something to watch out for when you're particularly in like a, a country that speaks another language from you, because it's so easy to get sucked into leaning on the expat community. And then, you know, you end up only speaking English. I kind of, you know, fell into that a little bit in Berlin, uh, where I think I could have picked up a lot more German, if not for the fact that the expat community was kind of already positioned that way that it was just like a a bunch of people from a bunch of different countries all speaking english and so as a, <laughs> as an english speaker primarily you, you don't pick up as much yeah yeah and there's like some pros and cons there like on one hand you're getting a super multicultural experience like if you're hanging out with 10 people from eight different countries and although you're all speaking english like there's a lot to be absorbed there, but you just have to be careful. I think about not letting that be like your only outlet for, for social life and like still, still trying to live the local experience. I, th I think you'll, you'll miss out on a lot of the experience if you don't, you know, try to be conscious of that. Definitely. I was going to ask you one, not, not to put you back on the, on the visa thing, but just very quickly, was it difficult as an Australian to stay in Europe? Um, I'm, I'm unsure what that process is like, like either in Germany or France for Americans, it can be pretty challenging, but what was your experience? Yeah, so I actually had a little trick in that I have a UK passport as well. And at the time, oh, that's right. the UK was technically <laughs> part of the EU. So, um, so I was able to stay and move around Europe on that. I know that for Australians, if you're 30 or under, there's a working holiday visa for, uh, for Europe. Or at least, no, sorry, at least for the UK. I'm not sure about Europe. I think there's, there is some, um, there's some arrangements between Germany and Denmark and Australia. So I think that you can sort of like spend at least a few months in those countries and then also travel in the Schengen area. And it doesn't sort of 
count towards your Schengen stay. So I know that Aussies can usually spend at least six months at a time in Europe, but I'm not quite sure about professional visas. Yeah. Okay. The uh, the dual passports is always preferred if you can uh, if you can muster that then uh, <laughs> that's that's the cleanest route to go so that's uh, that's amazing and how funny to have like the Aussie passport UK passport and but you're living in the US where neither of those really help you, you now you have to go back to the to Australia and sit through uh, fourteen <laughs> days of quarantine yeah exactly well uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about your experience in the US, you know, looking at it through the lens of like, if someone listening to this is also considering an immigration to the US, whether for a year or permanently or, or whatever, you know, just talking to those people, like what, what has your, this is a super broad stroke, I'm going to paint just to, you take it and run with it in whatever direction you want. But like, what has your experience been like, like, especially, you know, you've been there through a pretty tumultuous time with COVID and all of the the chaos of the last year or two and, and, uh, a psychotic president. And I mean, you've been there during a very interesting time. So like, what, what has the experience been like for you? I get a lot of people asking me why on earth I left Australia to go to the U S like, that was going to be my, my follow-up question. But yeah. <laughs> let, let's address it all together. Like you left one paradise for what is currently a bit of a, a shit show. So what, what I uh, mean, yeah, what's it been like? Honestly, I just love New York. So I, I feel like this is very coastal elitist of me to say this, but I feel almost like I didn't move to the US. I moved to New York, you know, like, and New York is, is very much a bubble. Um, and I'm very well aware of that. I, you know, I've traveled a bit inside the US, but definitely not as much as I should. And honestly, in, in New York, even with the crazy COVID situation. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel as hectic as Twitter makes the US feel like. I think that, you know, like I definitely doom scroll all the time. And I, and I do <laughs> wonder like, what the hell am I doing living in this country where this is happening and people voted for this? But yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, it's also what you make of it and you kind of surround yourself with the people that you want to surround yourself with. I think that's true of any place that you go. But yeah, for me, honestly, I visited New York once just on a vacation. Um, I was actually working remotely at the time just for a couple of weeks and I just kind of fell in love with it. And then, you know, the stars aligned and I ended up uh, finding the, the perfect job to sort of move there for and try it out. And, you know, I'd been sort of doing the whole digital nomad thing for a while in between living in France and ending up in New York. And that was probably almost a year of just kind of like living like that. Uh, and I think I was really craving some place to call home. I think that Instagram, you know, makes the digital nomad life look really enticing. And it's all like swimming pools and cocktails and laptops. and um, A lot of infinity but, you know, pools. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, after a while, I think maybe maybe this isn't for everybody, but I really just wanted a home. So finding that kind of that that idea of home in New York has been a huge thing for me. And I think for me, coming from Perth, which is it's a city, but it's a it's a pretty small city. And I think that I was always kind of craving to just get out 
you know, not get tied down here and find that kind of like stimulation. This is going off on a bit of a tangent, but like I've always had this theory that, you know, babies need stimulation. They need jangling keys and toys and numbers and all these sorts of stuff. And like, I feel like as adults, we also need that stimulation. And I think if you're in a place where you feel like, you know, you're, there's something bigger out there to go and explore, then you should do it. <laughs> and yeah. for me, New York, New York is just full of that stimulation that I was looking for. You know, you're never really bored. It's, it's not easy at all to live there but it's stimulating and it's interesting. And it's kind of what I was looking for. I just want to say I share of oddly similar kind of a joke, but kind of serious theory to yours about the babies and just that babies get all the cool stuff. And like, like I'm a big <laughs> fan of like applying more baby life to adults. And uh, so like, <laughs> like babies are constantly being entertained, constantly being having fun. They get all these fun toys and stuff. And it's like, why do we grow out of that? You know, like, let's, uh, let's keep that rolling through adulthood, but I won't go down that path. Uh, <laughs> no, I was, I was so worried. You're going to talk about some kind of like a uh, diaper fetish chase. No. <laughs> I'm so glad that's not the direction you went in. That's, that's, that's for my other podcast. We'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> it's okay. No, we can I, edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think like that, that, uh, sort of, I don't know if addiction is the right word, but at least a craving for adventure and just being stimulated, like is, and it's in the mundane things, right? Like going to, I remember my, my first, like one of my first, like kind of like long-term stints outside the U S was in Ecuador. And I remember like going, like really being excited about going to the market and like getting food. And it was because it was a pain. Yeah. Like it was, it was hard. I didn't speak really any Spanish at the time and was like, I, and the food was kind of weird. Like sometimes the biggest thing that comes to mind is to get like a chicken. Like they had, they had like basically just the whole chicken and like, they thought it was weird that I didn't want the head and the feet on there and they'd like chop it off <laughs> yeah. in front of you. And like, but, but it was, I mean, it was, so it was like kind of weird and gross and kind of stiff, but I was like going to the grocery store has become an adventure. And that is very addicting to me. And I think to most people that I've talked to on this show and just, you know, traveling around and stuff like that's something we all kind of share is that you, you want the mundane to become stimulating and, and that happens in a foreign place. Yeah, for sure. I think there's kind of two sides to it. Like there's, there's the, you know, the, the stimulation of like, oh, this is really crazy and different from what I'm used to, but what I got kind of addicted to eventually was this kind of, I don't know if, I don't know if addicted to it is the right, the right word, but basically this like realization that no matter where you go, everybody is kind of the same. Like mm -hmm. for me, the, the biggest eye opening thing about traveling to all these different places and, you know, especially the time in Cambodia is that like really everyone just wants to live a good life and, you know, I don't know, everybody, everybody's just pretty relatable no matter where you are in the world. And I think that was like a really kind of powerful um, realization to have. I think it's, you know, probably sounds really obvious, but like there's head knowledge and heart knowledge of something like that. And I think that, you know, when you, when you get that kind of heart knowledge of like, everyone's just the same. And even if we wear different clothes and speak different languages and have kind of different backgrounds, like the human condition is is pretty similar and 
I don't know. I, I feel like that was like a big growing up moment for me. It's kind of see people in a different light. I could not agree more. And it's, and what's taking it like one step further is like when you, when you can appreciate the differences and then at the same time, see all the similarity, like the similarities side of the coin is much bigger than the differences. And it makes enjoying those differences that much more fun. And, For sure. uh, and like that, that, that keeps everything really exciting. I think like you can, I mean, for you, like living in the U S like if you take a trip down to the South where I'm from, um, go venturing through Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama, like you're going to be in a whole different world. And like, you'll see, you know, despite the stereotypes and stuff, like for the most part, everybody is very, very similar, 90% similar, but you'll find some differences that hopefully you can enjoy and, and appreciate in a, in a different way. So I, I think that's, that's a, a, such a fun part about being in a place for a long enough period of time is to like notice those differences and, uh, and appreciate them, but then come back to like, we're all pretty much the same. Yeah, for sure. Kind of to throw a question at you. So I'm wondering, like, did you also have that, that calling to settle down somewhere and have like a real home base? Like how, how did you end up there? Yeah, the, the same story that you told 100% applies to me. So like long story short, like after sort of the digital nomad phase for a couple years, we were, my wife and I were also really craving a home base. And we thought our kind of ideal situation at the time was um, move back to the U.S. At the time, we were in Ireland. And we said, okay, we're going to move back to the U.S. and establish kind of like a home base, spend a year back home, get settled, maybe buy a home again, and kind of like have our stuff in a place and probably try to live there, you know, six months out of the year and maybe three months in another place and three months in another place or something like something along those lines. We we're both like fully working remotely at this time. And that was, that was doable. So the, the whole thing was we want a home base again. But when we got back to the U S after about a year and a half, like buying a house was becoming really difficult. We were having trouble finding what we wanted and a few things fell through and we just got itchy feet, like really craving more of a, a like we were craving being abroad again, basically. And my wife found this visa that we're on, which applied to Spain and we could choose where we wanted to go in Spain. We just had to pick a place. And we, so we picked Valencia kind of randomly, like, uh, it was on our radar, but we sort of had to make a snap decision and just picked it. And we said, okay, we'll go there for three months or something. And then we'll move on and maybe we'll try Barcelona for three months and, and so on. But when we got here, we felt really, really settled. And we said, let's just spend the whole year here. And we'll do some trips from here and we'll enjoy spending a year in Spain. And, and then we'll go back to the U S and figure out the next chapter. Now we've been here for three years. <laughs> so just kind of fell in love with it. We, under normal circumstances, we're traveling a lot, like, or maybe not a lot. It's not the right word, but like, you know, every two months or so, you know, we're taking a, a, a trip and exploring a different place in Europe. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like all, it's all worked out. Like we, we also really wanted the home base. That's the, the short answer and we also travel with as you know like a big dog like we have a 50 pound 23 kilo siberian husky that is not easy to move around um, yeah so logistically and also like finding a place to live like a lot of people are like i don't want your wolf in my house um, <laughs> so. i remember one of the one of the doest retreats that we went on together your your pup was like at some guy's farm 
and you would get these updates of, of how he was doing. It was awesome. Yeah, this guy, isn't it? We call him Uncle Hugo. He's this guy that, this is the cool thing about being in a place for long enough. Like you, you learned like this is a, a local dude that has a big piece of land and what they call the Campo, which is just like the countryside outside the city. And he comes into the city every day and he picks up around 10 to 15 dogs from the city in this big white van and takes them out to the to the Campo and puts GPS trackers on them and yellow vests and lets them run and play together. And he's like a dog whisperer. He's he's got them he's got them all trained and he, the, <laughs> my pup listens to him more than he listens to me. Um, Honestly, that yeah. that sounds like the dream job. Being the dog whisperer in a Spanish farm. <laughs> it does, man. He's he's a great guy and the dogs love it. And so, yeah. So when we travel, it's also super affordable, like compared to in the U.S. for a service similar. I mean, we're probably talking 15% of the price or 20% of the price or something. And uh, and so, yeah, it makes, it makes travel like one more element that makes travel very doable. Like if we want to go away for a week or two, it's that that's taken care of. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's actually like a big thing that uh, I feel like prevents people normally from from getting a dog is that like kind of locks you down there. But if you've got something like that, it's just perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's a I mean, that was a big element for us. We also decided we didn't want to travel like fly the dog anymore. Um, Yeah, yeah. Like, so basically, if we go back to the US, we kind of see it as like, we'll we'll be there and maybe we'll do the plan that I mentioned before where we'll go away for a month or something like that. But you know, he's like our, he's like our child. And so you're kind of like, I don't want to be away from him that long and you don't want to take him through the torture of traveling anymore. So that's an element we have to consider for like any future moves. Yeah, for sure. Turning it back to you real quick. And I will, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up in the, in the next few minutes. There's so many things I still want to get into, but just kind of like, quickly touching back on your experience in the US and you mentioned New York being like not an easy place to live but you love it can you elaborate on kind of both elements there a little bit like like what is it that makes it difficult um some of it may be obvious but some of it might not and then what also makes it just so like inspiring and so in such a fun place to live yeah it's interesting cuz you know in a lot of ways New York is probably the most convenient city on the planet, you know, of, of all the places that I've lived, it's definitely just ridiculously convenient. I mean, 24 hour subway is insanely expensive city, which is part of what makes it kind of hard to live there, but everyone rides the subway. Uh, and I love that. I love that it's this kind of, you know, it, it brings together people from all over the city uh, and the subway, you know, it kind of sucks, but <laughs> it works and everybody does it. So it's kind of like this, you know, when it's like a really terrible cold morning and it's like that kind of like day after the snow where it's all like gross and slushy on the ground and everybody's miserable. There's kind of this like solidarity on the subway where like everyone's grumpy and miserable. And I love that. Like I love- (laughs) We're in this together. Everyone's just in it together. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, whereas in Perth, life is so ridiculously easy that there's none of that. Like, you know, I mean, Perth is kind of like, imagine LA, but with, you know, an eighth of the population 
and probably twice as big. So it's like extremely spread out. And a lot of people live in suburbs where like they just have everything in their suburb and they'll just go to their like suburban restaurants and, and cafes and stuff, but never really like head into the city or where, where people from outside of their suburb might be. And I, I don't know, that's just not for me. I love that New York is just this like insane melting pot of, you know, a lot of different people, a lot of different things happening, a lot of interesting ideas and, you know, lots of art and, and music. And, you know, I, again, it's very, it's very kind of polarizing city because in a lot of ways, it's, it's really hard to live there because it is an extremely expensive city. I feel really like privileged to be in the position that I'm in. So I know that my experience of New York is definitely not the same as, you know, someone making half as much. So there's there's a lot of privilege to enjoying New York. And mm-hmm. I, I remember like Donald Glover did this SNL monologue. He basically jokes about how much better it is to be in New York now that he's rich. <laughs> and there's <laughs> honestly there's something to that. Like it's <laughs> it's a great city to be in if you if you can afford it. But my girlfriend has lived in New York for a lot longer than me. And she was a student for most of it, uh, working like three different jobs at a time. And uh, and then she went into the public education system and making like, you know, I mean, teachers make okay money in New York, but not fantastic. Um, and she loves it probably even more than I do. So there's definitely something for everybody in New York. But, um, but yeah, I, I think for me, that kind of like feeling of solidarity on the subway is is a big thing. And I don't know, it's just, it's a very stimulating city. That paints the perfect picture of like, like this dichotomy between like the, the grit and grime and the, uh, and the glamour, right? Like it's like everybody's in this one place together fighting through the, the rough weather or the, the fact that everybody's got to work hard because it's expensive, but like you're in it together and, and it brings cool fusion of energy together, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are definitely cities, you know, that are pretty much, you know, as expensive, if not more expensive, but there's something about, I don't know, New York's history or just the, the attitude of the city or the people that live there. There's definitely something special there. Yeah. And did did you find, um, like, like some people have a, a stereotype about New Yorkers that it's like, that it's kind of cold, but not, not weather-wise, but I mean, like the people like a little bit harsh or, you know, you kind of have to be like, you got to have your, your game face on a little bit to live in New York. Have you found that <laughs> to be true? And if so, challenging or, or what has your experience been in, in that way? I'm, I'm trying to answer this question for somebody who's maybe a bit intimidated by New York and, and the people and, and making that move, especially from abroad where you're already going to have a little bit of like inferiority perhaps. Yeah, I think I had a little bit of that expectation before I ever went to New York. My my sort of mental image of New York was that that montage in Home Alone 2 of like the the you know scary lady in uh, in Central Park and the the taxi driver who turns around and his teeth are all fucked up and but honestly New Yorkers are actually just extremely friendly in my opinion. Like I 
you know, I've been walking around this, like I love just walking around the city, which is why I don't think I could ever live in a city like Perth ever again, because it's not really walkable, but I've walked around New York. I mean, there's definitely a lot of interesting things that you'll see on the street, but you'll also see a lot of strangers helping tourists with getting where they're going. And like, uh, people are just very, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a very unpretentious, right? So I think that that, that, that attitude uh, can come across as a little bit like brash or, or harsh, but in reality, it's just like very honest people, but very willing to help as well. Like very, I would just say mostly like very friendly, um, very open and honest people. I, I know that like a lot of people from LA that have moved to New York, I've got a few friends that you know lived in LA and then ended up in New York the way that they've explained it is that in LA, everybody is super nice to your face, but it's all, it's all kind of like an act or a show. And in New York, people just tell you what they think about you. You know, there's no, there's no hiding it. There's no sugarcoating. And personally, I just, I really like that. I like knowing where I stand with somebody and uh, but in my experience that, that honesty and openness has always been, pretty friendly. Yeah, I've I've found the same to be true. Like uh that stereotype doesn't that some people have as has not really held true. I mean, I've I've also found people from New York to be super friendly and enjoyed the little bit of time I've spent there. My uh talking about making it work, you know, financially. My my wife did an internship there where she actually an unpaid internship while she was in in university wow. and college and had to live in New York. So basically she was paying to work and and uh so anyway, it's but it's an awesome city and I'm so glad that you're enjoying it and kind of thriving in my home country and and enjoying your experience despite all the chaos recently. Like it it does give me a sense of joy to know that People from the out, a lot of people from the outside are looking in. It's easy to kind of bash what's going on there and to hear from foreigners who are living there and, and really enjoying themselves and can speak highly of the people and the experiences and stuff is not really something I'm seeking out. But when I come across it, I, I find that I really enjoy that and appreciate it. So glad you are doing well and, and enjoying the experience there. I want to end real quick with just a couple quick questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. If you had to answer just kind of quickly off the top of your head, what advice would you give to somebody moving to New York for the first time, particularly if they're coming from, from outside the U.S. and sort of unfamiliar with the landscape? Is there any major advice or quick tips you would give them, like how to, how to get started? Let me think. I think obviously the first thing you're going to have to do is find a place to live. I think the best thing to do if you can do this is to use something like Airbnb or, uh, you know, some kind of like short stay rentals to sort of explore the neighborhoods uh, because the neighborhood that you live in will definitely affect your experience of New York and everyone's different and there's something there for everybody, but you do have to kind of get your lay of the land and sort of work out where is going to fit for you. So, you know, someone that really enjoys like, you know, Bushwick and the bars and clubs out there will probably hate Midtown and the Upper East Side, but 
on the flip side, you know, there are, there are places in, in Brooklyn and that are like probably, you know, kind of slow and boring. And then other places in lower Manhattan that are like extremely exciting and fast paced and kind of rough and ready. So you definitely want to sort of get that sort of understanding of, of what the city is like and, and find your place. I think learning how the subway works is probably pretty important. Like that's one of the top, one of the, the thing you mentioned about housing is one of the top questions that I get from people that want to kick off an, a new lifestyle. And they just say like, I just don't even know how to, like, I don't know where I would live. I think that a lot of us have like a permanency mindset. Like I need to go somewhere and like kind of already have my house housing organized before I get there. And what you did, what you mentioned with like finding an Airbnb or sort of, you know, getting, getting a lay of the land, like rent a place for a month or three months or something and, and figure out which, which neighborhoods right for you. And, uh, and starting there with some of the basics is, is way more important than like trying to, you know, from Perth, trying to pick which street in Brooklyn you want to live in. Cause you've read <laughs> cool things about Brooklyn. Like you don't know, you know, get there and figure it out. Right. I think one of the things as well for uh, for foreigners that's really tricky about moving into the U.S. is, you know, when I moved, the first thing that I had to do was get a social security number. So there's a lot of like bureaucracy like that. And then when it comes to renting, you basically need to be able to prove that you're going to be able to pay rent. And since you have like no credit when you first enter the U.S. and credit for people abroad, like the US credit thing is so bizarre. Like in the in Australia, it's not great to have a lot of credit cards. There is such thing as like a credit score, but it's very different. Whereas in the US, basically as a foreigner, what you want to do is just get any credit card you can as quickly as you can and start using it a lot to try and build your credit score because in the US that's super important and as a foreigner, you start with zero. So that's going to look kind of strange on some of your <laughs> rental applications. It's such a funny thing because it is so true. I, I'm recalling now when I turned 18, which is when credit card companies can literally can can start poaching you and selling to you. I mean, I just got flooded with credit card applications and this is considered like a normal thing. Like, yeah, you got to have yeah. a couple credit cards, you know? And uh, I, I, I still get, I mean, probably like three a week credit card things in my mail and I, I honestly don't know how they have my address because you know it's from like these companies that I don't have an account with so there must be some you know registry that everybody's just put on and everybody just gets flooded with these credit card offers it's it's insane oh yeah no it's uh it's a real thing and it's a I think it's a problem but whatever that's a another issue um but yeah i can imagine as a foreigner it must be a very bizarre thing and and actually it's a great segue I mean, that may be your answer but i wanted the last question i wanted to ask you is what have you found to be sort of like the weirdest thing the the most shocking may, shocking may not even be the right word but like what's kind of surprised you the most about your move to the u.s and any or anything that you found it's sort of just like why do you guys do it this way honestly I think from having lived in, you know, European countries and, and spending a bunch of time in Southeast Asia, you know, Australia and the U.S. are just like so close that moving from Australia to the U.S. isn't super strange. Um, I think I, 
I am constantly, I'm saying this to my girlfriend all the time, like one that I can't believe that I'm living in the US because um, I just never sort of pictured myself there. So I guess like a bit of advice is to not write the US off. Like it's, it's still a really interesting place to live. It's, you know, it's strange and it's confusing and it's, you know, very divided in a lot of ways. But there's still something there if you're, <laughs> if you're looking for it. Like, it's not for everybody, for sure. But I, I mean, even, you know, where you told me that you lived in Asheville before and you made it sound like really interesting. I still haven't had a chance to go there, but I actually have a friend living in Raleigh at the moment. So I will eventually visit. And, you know, even like, I don't know, for, in Australia, you know, we have like a few capital cities spread out on the coast, but the US just has so much going on. There's so many different cities in, you know, differing sizes and public transportation options and things like that. But there's also like a lot of um, natural beauty in the US, which I think really surprised me. You know, I knew that like California was a beautiful place, but like actually driving through some of Northern California on a trip recently, I was just like, blown away at how how incredibly beautiful it is um, and very different from the kind of Australian landscape that I know. So, yeah, I mean, biggest kind of difference, I think, I mean, like people, people are different all over the world. And right. I think that, you know, as much as as much as like I expected Australians and Americans you know, when you're actually living in a city to be similar just due to our history and like Australia's picked up a lot of stuff from US culture and everything. I think I've been like introduced and confronted and seen a lot of different types of viewpoints in, in even just in New York, in, in the bubble that is New York. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of diversity in the US, especially in New York and I think there's more than I thought there would be. Mm. I think there's yeah, more that's... difference between my idea of the US. It's different to what I thought it would be based on, I think, pretty simple and outdated um, ideas of, of what the US has become, especially over the last you know four or five years. It's definitely more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And and your point about the natural beauty shouldn't be overlooked either. Like I when I when people ask me like where should I go in the US? Like I'm thinking LA, New York and Vegas and I'm like please replace one of those with like, you know, Glacier National Park or Yosemite or or something, you know, like get, get out <laughs> yeah. and see the beauty that we have to offer in in the natural world because that's that's the I wouldn't say a hidden gem, but that's a kind of the diamond in the rough that we've that we've got to offer. Simon, man, this was so fun for me. I hope I hope you enjoyed it too. It'd been way too long I since we've it. seen each other. And I just I had so much fun chatting with you and learning more about your experiences. And um I'm sure people listening will will take a lot of uh practical information away and some inspo to to live a little more like Simon. Dude, I had so much fun. This was great. And it's great to catch up. It's been way too long since we chatted. Uh yeah, I had a great time. I'm really looking forward to listening to the other interviews you've done. Uh, thank you so much, man. We will, uh, we will do a better job staying in touch. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, man. 
Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. You can visit aboutabroad.com to get our latest updates and listen to past episodes, or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really anywhere you get your podcasts. On that note, if you enjoyed the show, feel free to subscribe, and if inclined, leave a few stars and a review. It's truly, truly appreciated and will help more wanderers just like you find us. Until the next time, adios from España.